We are beginning a brand new series of messages today called um, Seven. And you can see the graphic says seven words to the church today. And so uh, we're going to pick out a word um, or a couple of words over the course of this series that we're going to talk about. And this series comes from the book of Revelation. Um, And I'm just going to be right up front with you right off the bat, okay? This is my least favorite book of the Bible to preach from. All right? um, Bobby and I were talking about this this morning that when you ask people what they want to study, everybody says, oh, we want to do a study on Revelation. We want to do a study. And it's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because you get about four chapters into it, and he's like, oh, I don't understand any of this, right? And, and that's kind of, and so it's like, oh, well, you're the preacher. You should know about it. So and I'm going to tell you, I fall in that same category a lot of times. And so um, I'll just tell you, there, there's something about this book of the Bible that fascinates people. It, it scares people. It confuses people. And because of the, the world that we live in and, and the kind of the current climate, and I'm not talking about global warming, but, but the climate of the world that we live in, people are always asking questions about this kind of stuff. And this isn't new. In fact, people have been asking these same questions since the very first century. In fact, Jesus' disciples asked the same question, but they asked questions like, hey, are we living in the last days? Or is this the end of times? Or, or, or is doomsday approaching? In fact, you know, just a few years ago, there was a whole series on like A&E or TLC or one of those channels about doomsday preppers. And I'm just, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, if you're a doomsday prepper, I don't mean this to be offensive to you. I just don't get it, okay? Um, you're prepping for the end of the world, right? That's the whole point of doomsday. It's the end of the world. You're not going to survive this. So let's hoard all of these resources and do what with them, because you're not going to be here. But all of that is just an, another rant for another time. But with all of the unrest in the Middle East, and you've got ISIS and the Taliban, and the war with Russia and Ukraine, and there's always the worry about China and North Korea, and you know, do they have nuclear weapons? And, and then now there's that new dreaded C word. And we're not talking cancer anymore, we're talking COVID. And reports would tell you that COVID is back on the rise, at least here in Hardin County anyway, and and, and there's just so much unrest. You know, there's political unrest. We've never had this much political unrest in our country in our lifetime, in any of our lifetime. In fact, you have to probably go back to the Civil War to find as much political unrest in our country as you find now. There, there's economic unrest. I mean, you can go back a few years and we can see some, some of the same things, but, but everybody's feeling the pain at the pump, right? <laughs> you know, when I bought my car, it took $20 to fill it up, and now it takes $50 to fill it up. And uh, my, I have a new driver in my house, and I'm going, well, you're going to have to go back to work if you want to drive because I can't afford to fill up three cars every week, right? And so everybody's feeling that kind of pain at the pump. And so there's economic unrest. There, there's racial unrest. We, we would have thought by this point in the history of our country, we would have made so much further ground in, in racial divisions and, and, and racial reconciliation. But yet here we are. It's still an issue. It's still a topic. And, and it's not just a South issue, okay? There's kind of this misconception of our country that, oh, well, it's just the backward South. No, 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 it's not. It's all over the country. It's all over the world. There's, there's racial unrest. Crime and violence are on the rise. And all of these things cause us to wonder, is the end near? Are we, are we at the last days? There, there's an HBO series that was out a few years ago called The Leftovers. And it was based on those who were left behind after the return of Jesus. It, it's similar. It's, it's a little more uh, uh, secular. In fact, it's a lot more secular. But it's similar in its theme to the Left Behind series that was popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, 
And if you watched the Leftover series or if you read the Left Behind books or watched the movies that went with them, let me just remind you about these kind of things right off the bat. They're fiction. Okay, in fact, if you open up the Left Behind books, I know they have a Christian theme to them, but if you open up the, the books and like on the inside of the front cover, it actually says this is fiction. And so they should be read or, or taken as fiction. They should not carry the same weight as Scripture. And even though they were wildly popular, they're not Scripture. They shouldn't be interpreted as such. The writers and, and makers of these movies, they, they use what's called creative license. And so they add stuff and take stuff out and they make stuff up. You know, it's, it's what they get paid to do. It's okay. It's what their, their job is. But it shouldn't be considered in the same light as Scripture. But if you read those things or, or watch those things, it's easy to become overwhelmed by all of it. I mean, it's scary stuff. But my hope is not to scare people. It's, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's to encourage you. I don't want to discourage you or, or cause alarm. My goal, in fact, over the next few weeks is going to be to offer hope and peace, even in the midst of alarming and uncertain times. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says this. It says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Did you catch that? It said there's a blessing for those who read and listen and obey what's written in this letter. And that's what I want for us, is, is God's blessing and His favor. But I'll tell you, growing up, this, this book, Revelation, it was a, it was a scary book. It, to me, it was used like a preacher's uh, use hell a lot of times. It was to scare people into behaving. Um, you know, they, it's always kind of the same thing. The Antichrist is going to show up, and you'll have to take the number of the beast. And we're not talking the Iron Maiden album. Uh, but if, if you want to buy food, you're going to have to have this mark of the beast. And if you don't behave, then Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to be left behind. One other thing uh, that I'll just throw this out. I'll give anybody $100 if you can find the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Because that's all you hear about when you talk about Revelation, the Antichrist this and Antichrist that. I'll give you $100 if you can find it. I'm going to save you some time. It's not in there. All right? Uh, I can remember one time, my, my mom used to sing in a quartet, or a quintet, a ladies quintet from my home church. And they would go to different revivals and sing. And we went to this one uh, old southern country church, and the revival speaker, he, he was one of the old-fashioned kind of hellfire and brimstone preachers, and he loved to preach from Revelation. And he loved to preach this idea that, hey, if you don't behave, Jesus is going to come back and you're going to be left behind. And, I mean, he was fiery, and he slammed his hands down on the pulpit a number of times. And by the end of that, I was kind of thinking, okay, I better behave because things are going to get bad. And a couple days later, I had been out with some friends. I was like 10 or 11 at the time, and I'd been out playing with some friends, and we were probably doing stuff we shouldn't have been doing. And I came home, and I'm expecting my mom and my dad to both be home and my sister to be home. And I come home, and nobody was there. Nobody. And I thought, oh, crap. It's happened. <laughs> it's happened. And so I'm running through the house, and I'm you know, hollering for mom and hollering for dad and hollering for my sister, and nobody's there. I thought, oh, well, I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. And now I've been left behind. It turns out my parents had gone to the grocery store in another town. Uh, there, was and, there wasn't and still isn't a Walmart or Kroger in the, in the county I grew up in. My older sister had gone to a friend's house. But you better believe I was on my best behavior, at least for a week or so. And some of you relate to that. Some of you, some of you just find it terribly funny, but that's okay. One year at high school camp, I was a student in high school camp. So this will tell you how long ago that was. 
and we played a game for the evening activities, a Wednesday night, and the game for that night was going to be a game that, that the dean had made up called Dougville. And Dougville was a fictional town, and it was kind of a role-playing game, and, and, and it was aptly named after the dean of the week, Doug Martin. And so uh, we play this game, and there's only one rule in Dougville, is you can't be a Christian. Now, this is a made-up town. Um, everybody's a citizen of this town, and there's lots of things. They, they were very elaborate in setting this up. They had fake money that we could go spend. We could go to the theater and watch a movie. We could go take it to the carpet ball tables, and, and there was a little casino that they were running over there, and you could, you could win money and, and fake money, of course, and there were prizes and all that kind of stuff. But again, the only rule was you couldn't be a Christian. And for a lot of high school teenagers, that wasn't a bad rule. It's like, hey, most of the things that we're doing right now, we shouldn't be doing anyway, and now you're telling us not to feel guilty about it. And so we thought, this is kind of a great rule. And so the goal was to accumulate as much as you could at the end of the game to have the most money, the most prizes, the most stuff. But at, some, at a certain point in the game, you might be asked to become a Christian. And, and there would be this kind of little underground church that was developing. And, and the goal was to, you know, to be a Christian but you know, not get caught too much. And if you did, that was okay. There was, a, there was a Dougville jail that they would take you to and you'd sit the rest of the game in there. And, and it was okay. But then the bell rang, and the game was over, and everybody went through the canteen line, and you told, people, you told the, the faculty workers at the canteen line how much money and how much stuff you had. And they asked you, were, were you a Christian in the game? And you said yes, or you said no. And the game was over. And camp went on just like normal the rest of the night, and everybody went to bed. And somewhere about 1 or 1.30 in the morning, there was a major ruckus. Like lights in the dorm come on, there's all kinds of people screaming and hollering and trumpets blowing, and there's just this mass chaos. And, and the faculty's trying to get everybody out of the dorms, and, and all I could make out was, Jesus has come back for the citizens of Dougville. That's what, that was the, the recurring message, Jesus has come back for the citizens of Dougville. And so they get us all out into this field, and we're standing there, and all of a sudden, at the bottom of this hill, you can't see over it, but there's just this light pops up and it's bright and somebody had their car down there and they're shining their bright lights up the hill and this silhouette you can make out is walking up the hill and it turns out Mike Napier the guy from Indispensable Church uh, got to play the part of Jesus and as he gets to the top of the hill he begins reading off the names of those who followed Christ during the game of Dougville and then after the last name was read he said to those standing in the ball field depart from me for I never knew you and those who were left standing went back to bed. And those who had become a Christian, they went into the cafeteria and they had cake and ice cream. And let me just tell you, it was a powerful and scary and inspiring and something that I still vividly remember. A few years later, we tried to recreate Dougville with a middle, middle school group. And we didn't pull it off quite as well, um, which led one of my middle school students to ask when we asked her you know, what she thought of the game. She said, you woke me up in the middle of the night, told me I was going to hell and to go back to bed. <laughs> which is really kind of what we did. Uh, and obviously, that wasn't the goal. And my goal isn't to scare anyone into believing in Jesus or to scare you into behaving because fear is a terrible motivator. Because once the fear wears off, so does the change. But let me just throw this in there. Is that one day, and I don't know when, but one day Jesus will come back. And one day he will read a list of names. And at the end of that reading of those list of names, those who have, uh, his names have been read, 
they're going to receive something much greater than cake and ice cream in a camp cafeteria. And for those whose names is not read, it's going to be much worse than just being told, hey, go back to bed now. Here in the first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches. And that's where we're going to camp out is these seven churches. And they're, they're congregations that were just like us. And he's got some good things to say to these groups. He's had, he has some correction to offer them, some wisdom to share. And in all of it, there are some important lessons for, for us to apply that can help us grow and to make us more like Jesus. So I want us to jump right in and look at the first of these seven churches. It's the church in Ephesus. And all of these seven churches, they, they were found in what is modern-day Turkey. So if you look on a map, you can find Turkey. You can find all of these seven churches. They were all in cities there. And they were all Gentile, non-Jewish congregations. So people, people like us. And, and this first church, the, the church at Ephesus, man, you talk about an impressive church. It had an impressive history. I mean, it's, it's church staff. I, look, I love our church staff. I'm, I'm a little partial to our church staff. I think we have a pretty good staff. Um, but their church had an incredible staff. I mean, their, their, their first pastor was the Apostle Paul. Now, I know Mike was their youth minister, but, but, but I mean, it doesn't get much better than the Apostle Paul as your preacher, right? And then his right-hand man, Timothy, took over after Paul. And then later, John, the, the guy who's going to pen this, this letter, who's a part of Jesus' inner circle, he would lead the church. I mean, they had great leadership, and they did tons of good stuff in the community. And so here's what Jesus says to him. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 2. We're going to start at verse 2. He says, I know all the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they are not. You've discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. It, Jesus is saying all of these things are good things. And then some other things that we know about the church in Ephesus. I mean, they, they were a serving church. They were busy doing good things. They were a sacrificial church. They gave, they gave generously. They were a steadfast church. They, they stayed strong even in difficult times. They, they were a separated church, meaning that they didn't tolerate false teachers. They, they were wise in, in how they understood and discerned Scripture. And when somebody came in with, with something that was contrary to that, they, they quickly uh, dismissed it. They were doing all of the right things. But is it possible to do all of the right things for all of the wrong reasons? I think our motives matter to God. Because look at what Jesus says next. He says, but I have this against you. He's just given a list of all of the things that he loves about this church, all of the good things that they're doing. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, look, I've got something against you. There is something that is hindering our relationship. There is something that is getting in the way of our relationship. So what could it be? He says to the, to the church at Ephesus, he says, you have abandoned. Maybe another way to say it was you've sent away or you have dismissed the love that you've had for me. Jesus said, you, you used to really love me. When, when you first became a Christian, you were all in. Now you're in love with all of the things that you do. You've walked away from, from what led you to do these things in the first place. You're still doing them, but, but you don't really love me. You, you just love the idea of doing good. You've left the real, and you've, and you've embraced the religious. You, you've abandoned our relationship for religious activity. Jesus said, it used to be all about your love for me, but now it's just all about you. It's all about yourselves. 
And that's a problem. It was a problem for the church in Ephesus. And, and I'll just say, it's a problem for just about 90% of all churches in America. I can't speak for churches. I really shouldn't speak for any other church. But, but especially churches around the world. But this is a common problem that we see in, in churches across our country. It's an easy drift to go from being all about Jesus to all about ourselves. It's, it's an easy drift to being to, to loving people and leading people to, to love and follow Jesus to, hey, look what I'm doing. And look what we're doing, maybe in the name of Jesus, but look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at us. It's kind of, you know, doing good things just to keep up the appearances. But, but you know what that leads to? It leads to not being real. It's kind of the same as, as wearing a mask, being a hypocrite, faking it. You know, it, it leads to pride. There, there's a wrong motive there. Look, we can do all of the right things for all of the wrong reasons. And, and, and Jesus will look at us and he'll say the same thing that he said to the church at Ephesus. You have abandoned me. You have given up your first love. I mean, it, it's, it's like doing all of the right things for, for the sake of ego. Look at me, notice me, praise me. Totally the opposite of look at Jesus, worship Jesus, notice him, follow him. It's, there's a big contrast there, isn't it? We can do all of the right things, again, for all of the wrong reasons. Look, I'm sure you see it in your own life, your circle of friends, jobs, families, where, where, where this might have been the case. And maybe even us, at times, doing the right things but for the wrong reasons. And it shouldn't be this way. And there's a better way. And Jesus tells them how to fix this and how to get back on track. Here's what he says in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. There's three things he tells them to do here. He says the first thing is to remember. Remember where, where you were when you started. Remember what caused you to love me to begin with. Remember that. And then he says to repent, to, to change, to shift, to align themselves back with him, not with, with, their, with their own cause, but with, with his agenda, not theirs. And then he says, repeat, do the works you did at first. Repeat the things that you did early in, in, in your relationship, early in your life as a Christian, before you got off track, before it became all about you. Go back to those things, repeat those things. And this is where I want us to zero in on this morning. This is where I think we can get very practical and kind of draw and tease out the lessons that apply to us here. And I want you to remember four things. And if you forget everything else I say today, but remember these things, I, I think it will serve you well. And, and I'm going to give them to you real quick, and, and then I'm going to give you the glue that holds them together. It's three things, actually, and then the glue that holds them together, and it's this. First one is this. Get the right perspective. Get the right perspective. Then get the right priorities, and then get the right patterns. Right, right perspective, right priorities, right patterns. And the glue that holds all of those together is to choose joy. Choose joy. You got that perspective, priorities, patterns. Choose joy. Let's talk about those things a little bit more in depth. So John or writes this. Jesus says this. He says, remember. Remember. And so that's getting the right perspective. It's all about having the right perspective. Because here's what happens all too often is we get neck deep in something. And we're so close to it that we can't see the big picture. We get so laser focused in on it that all we see is right in front of us. And sometimes that causes us to lose perspective. Sometimes it's, it's kind of like that old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. You know, this happens in, in all walks of life. Spouses take each other for granted because they're just always around each other. You just always expect that your spouse is going to be there. And so you take them for granted. We excuse destructive habits by saying this is just the way it is. 
the, the church equivalent of that is to say, well, this is just the way we've always done things. All right? And let me just, look, if, if there's something that you need to talk with me about, an issue that you th- maybe see in the church, um, I'm always open to have those conversations. But if you come to me, and, you, and I'm just being very honest with you, if you come to me and your first uh, reason for why you're not happy about something is, well, well, this is just the way we've always done it. I can tell you that's not going to be a real long conversation. Because the way that we've always done things is not an excuse to keep doing things, all right? The way that we've always done things is not an excuse to always just, well, let's just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. That's, that, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. There's got to be a, a, an attempt at sometimes to try things differently. And, and look, that's okay. Look, nobody likes change. I get it. Nobody likes change. Nobody likes change for the sake of change. And change for the sake of change is not good. But sometimes things have to evolve. Sometimes you've got to do things differently. We live in a different world now. We live in a different era. Culture has changed. Times have changed. The, the, the message of Jesus has not changed. It's timeless. So we're never going to change that, okay? But sometimes we have to change the methods. And that's okay. We've got to get the right perspective. Uh, at work, sometimes we can start to get a chip on our shoulder because we think we deserve you know, maybe more money, and, and maybe you do. But we lose sight of the fact that, that we have a job when others are struggling to find work. Kids complain about what's for dinner, not realizing that there are lots of kids that show up to school every day that, that are going hungry. Um, I talked to one superintendent of, a, of another school district um, about 45 minutes south of here, and he said the biggest uh, thing that they take into consideration when calling school off is not the condition of the roads. When, you, when, you know, when snow comes in, that, that's, that's a factor, but it's not the, the deciding factor. The deciding factor is how many of his kids are not going to eat that day. Because the majority of their students, the only time they're going to eat is when they're at school. And so he says, if we call school off, then my kids don't eat. Or at least they don't eat as much. You know, maybe they eat something. And he said, that's, that's the deciding factor. And so, so sometimes we just need to, to keep those things in mind. We need to take a step back and get, the, get some perspective. We need to take a step back and get the 30,000-foot picture instead of just the 3-foot picture. A lot of time people will come, come to me and, and they'll start telling me about a problem. And, and, and a lot of times what I will do is I'll just ask some questions. You know, you start telling me about all, you know, this issue, why you're upset uh, with your wife or your husband or, or your boss or whatever. And so I just want to start asking some questions to help, to help gain perspective. And I'm telling you, a lot of times once the perspective changes, they begin to see things differently. I'm telling you, perspective is powerful. It, it's clarifying. So, so we need a proper perspective. So how do we get that proper perspective? Well, choose joy. Choose joy. J-O-I. Jesus, others, yourself. You want the right perspective? Then see Jesus, as, see things as Jesus sees them. See people as Jesus sees them. That person that you hate, that annoys you, that you just can't wait for throat punch Thursday. See, Annie, I got you again, again. You, you can't wait for, for that day. Jesus loves them. Man. That's some powerful perspective when you think, you know what, Jesus died for that person that I just, I'm really struggling with. They're on my last nerve. And Jesus died for them just the same as he died for me. See, see things through, through others' eyes. There's Jesus and then, then others. You know, the old, old uh, cliche is to walk a mile in, the, in their shoes. We're so quick to judge 
uh, other people. But what would happen if we just tried to understand people and where they're coming from? I think that's the biggest reason we have so much conflict in, in our society today is because we don't take any time to understand where people are coming from. We just assume that they're coming at us from the worst possible situ- situation scenario and, it's, and that's um, negative to, to where we're at. But we don't take the time to talk and have a conversation. Um, people sometimes with you know checkered past show up to church, and you know especially in small towns like Glendale, everybody knows everybody, right? And if somebody's had a kind of a rough past, you know it. And they show up to church, and then it doesn't take long before the rumor mill and the gossip mill starts going. And well, maybe they're court ordered to be here. Maybe they're 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 just trying to. I mean that happens. It it, it does. Maybe they're they're just trying to to um, you know save face or whatever, maybe, maybe their past has caused them to say, you know what, I can't continue to live like this, and maybe I should say yes to Jesus and no to my past. And what would happen if everybody that walked through the doors of our building, instead of just initially saying, oh, I know what they did two years ago, said, you know what, hey, maybe they're saying yes to Jesus. And saying no to their past. Because look, all of us are here because at some point in our life we said yes to Jesus and no to our past. And if Jesus can change us, then why can't he change somebody else? I mean, we've got to get past this, oh, people don't ever change. They do. They do. The power of of grace and mercy is powerful enough to change lives. It was powerful enough to change mine. It was powerful enough to change yours. Why isn't that same grace and that same mercy have the same power to change the lives of somebody else. So, so let's just, you know, love assumes the best. Love assumes the best. So, so choose joy, Jesus and others, and then you. The right perspective comes down to choosing joy. That, that, I hate to say it as a formula, but, but maybe it is. It, for perspective, it's Jesus and others and then you. So remember, then Jesus says, repent. Get the right priorities. Now, now this word repent, it's not a word that we use a lot in modern conversations. It, it's kind of a churchy word, and I get that. And usually when somebody uses the word repent, they equate it to saying, you know, hey, I'm sorry, and, and modifying behavior. But I want to say this word is much richer and deeper than just saying I'm sorry and modifying behavior. This, this word repent, it carries with it the idea of, of coming into alignment. When, when we do things our, our way, our own way, we are out of alignment with God. But when we repent, when we acknowledge that that our way of thinking and acting is is out of sync, it's out of alignment with God, and we repent, we come into alignment, and our thinking and our behavior changes. The goal of repentance is always behavior change. I mean, it's always that. But it doesn't happen until we get our thoughts and and our motives aligned with God. It's what we spent four weeks talking about just, you know, the last series, Thy Kingdom approach not my kingdom but thy kingdom approach and so when it comes to our priorities we need to get them in alignment with God's priorities so how do we do it well we choose joy Jesus first right um we we tend to think of priorities as a priority list and so Jesus is my number one priority and I want to discourage you from thinking that I've used this illustration before but I like the 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 wheel you know and, and Jesus is the center he's the hub of that wheel without that wheel without that hub nothing else happens He's, he's, he's the center of it. And everything else are just spokes on the wheel. And those can, maybe those can be listed, you know, maybe those are more, there's some things that are more important than others. Obviously there are. And so we want to get Jesus first. We want to put him at the center of that hub. 
And, and when we make time for Jesus at the beginning of our day, I just tell you, your day goes so much better. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to have a bad day uh, from time to time. But I know when I, when, I make Jesus, when I make time for Jesus at the beginning of my day, it's a better day. I get so much more done. I'm more productive. I'm way more focused. My attitude is better. So let's make Jesus the center, the, the, the top priority, the first priority. Then others. That's, that's the, the O in here. Others. You, you put other people second, ahead of you. And, and look, I get it. That's so countercultural to the culture that we live in. Our culture screams, put yourself first. It's all about you and your needs and your wants. We live in a me-centric culture. I want what I want, and I want it now. That's the culture that we live in. So I get it. serving others, putting other people first is not natural. But when we put others ahead of us, life just works better. Think about it. When, when you put your spouse ahead of yourself, what's your relationship at home like? It's better, I bet. When, when you put your kids ahead of yourself and you think of them and their needs and how you can serve and care for them, what happens with your kids, with your relationship with your kids? It's better, right? Then put yourself last. Make, make Jesus the center and other people ahead of you. And then worry about yourself last. And I get, when, when we do that, we, we are aligning ourselves, we're aligning our priorities, and we're being like Jesus. But I get, it, it, the temptation is to say, well, if I do all of that, if I put other people ahead of me, who's going to take care of me? I just say that, that it comes back around. Life has a way of working out. Because you're modeling behavior that you want, you're modeling the behavior that you want to see in other people. Um, I'm going to... This is going to make some of you mad, so just be ready. Um, there, there's a generation divide in our culture, in our world. There's no, that's not a secret. I'm not telling you anything you don't know there. Um, there. There are generations, though, that have major issues with younger generations. Older generations have major issues with younger generations, and they say things like, like well, they're just lazy, and they just don't do this, and they're disrespectful, and they don't do all of this. And, and yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I'm not making light of that. In fact, most of those things I would probably agree with and say, hey, my generation is, is chief among all of those, right? Um, it's the participation ribbon tro and trophy generation. Let me say this. Who taught them those things? Who gave them the participation trophies? Because I guarantee you the five-year-olds at T-Ball didn't go orderal, right? Look. I get every parent wants their kids to have better and to more than they had as, as they were growing up. I get that. that. Look, I'm the same way in that regard. But generations behind us will model what the generation before them taught them. They will model the behavior that they saw in them. And, and, and I'm just, I got to spend the, day, uh, spend the morning uh, down at the firehouse yesterday uh, serving breakfast. And... Uh, as we're, I'm slopping eggs on people's plates, and, and you know the group that said thank you the most often? Younger generation. You know the group that was the most gruff and, yeah, give me that. Thank you. That kind of, well, most of them were using canes to walk with. Here's, all I'm getting at is, is if we want things to change, if we want people to, to, to serve us, then we better start serving them because the, the behavior that we model 
It's how people will, will treat us. It, it is. It's how they will treat us. If I want you to serve me, guess what? I'm going to serve you. And, and, and maybe that's a bad motive, but, but I want to model the behavior that I want in all of you all to, to act out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to model that. Because, and, and that's what Jesus did. He modeled the behavior that he wanted his disciples to follow. That's why he washed feet when he knew he was going to die. Look, we think about all the things that we would do if we knew we were going to die in, in three days. What, I would do this and I would do that. Jesus knew. And you know what he did? He washed feet. I mean, that's a powerful thing to think about. So we've got to get the right priorities. Choose joy, Jesus, others, and then ourselves. And the last thing is to repeat, to, to get the right patterns. Well, how do we do that? You got it. Joy, Jesus, others, you. It's a daily choice. We, we need to choose to repeat this pattern on a daily basis. Right perspective, right priorities, and repeat. Keep on choosing every day, Jesus, others, yourself. When you have a decision to make, choose joy, Jesus, others, yourself. How, how you spend your time, choose joy, Jesus, others, yourself. How you spend your money, choose joy, Jesus, others, yourself. How you treat other people, choose joy, Jesus, others, yourself. Keep repeating it until it becomes your way of life. And it's not fake it till you make it, right? It's, it's keep doing it until it becomes natural. Until it becomes the only way that you behave, that you know to behave. This has to be our daily routine, our daily pattern, our method of operations. We choose joy. And when we choose joy, we will do the right things for the right reasons. And we won't have to worry about Jesus writing to the church at Glendale saying, I have something against you. That you've abandoned your first love. Abandoning, abandoning the love of Jesus won't ever have to be an option because we have the right perspective and we have the right priorities and we have the right patterns because we have chosen joy, Jesus and others, and then ourselves. Look, if we do that, if we will choose joy, it will change marriages, it will change families, it will change jobs, it will change our church, it will change our community and, and the culture that we live in here in Glendale and Hardin County. This is how we change the world. It really is. And it's what Jesus wanted for the church at Ephesus. And it's what he wants, I think, for the church here at Glendale. Priorities. Patterns and perspective. Joy. Choose joy. Let me pray for us.